me ask you to take your Bibles here. Turn to the book of Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter number 4. As you can see, we return to our study of Genesis today. Hopefully you remember that the last couple of steps that we took in this series were actually sermons preached by Pastor Dave uh, in my absence earlier in the summer. He preached a sermon from Genesis 3, really the end of that chapter, on the coverings that God provided for Adam and Eve. And then he preached a sermon on Cain's murder of his brother Abel and the fallout from that from the first half of chapter 4. Last time that I preached from this book, we returned to and we wrestled with a single verse uh, from chapter 3 that addressed what we now know as the first gospel. We spent our time together in that. This morning, we come to a portion of the text of chapter 4 that contrasts two lines that descended from Adam and Eve. A line of Cain, a line of Seth. I want to begin by reading down through the text. It's just a few verses here at the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. I want to read down through verse 26. We read, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushel. Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. She said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, friends, some might read down through these verses that make up the end of of chapter 4 and simply see a genealogy of sorts. But I would argue that the truth of the matter here is that there is so much more going on than may initially meet the eye. In fact, I would argue that what we find here is the record of a great divide It's a great divide in humanity. It's a divide that we still find in our world today. You see, it's actually this great divide that gives us the two big ideas or thoughts that we want to consider from the text this morning that we're going to use as the outline for our study of this passage. 
You see, this passage, friends, tells us the story first of those who live independent of God. Those who live independent of God. And it also begins to tell the story of those who live dependent on God. Those who live independent of God and those who live dependent on God. And what I want to do is just spend the balance of our time this morning working our way through these two big ideas. I want to consider these, and we're going to, we're going to look at our chapter, but we're going to kind of chase some thoughts through Scripture as well. I want us to wrestle with these big ideas. So the first thing I want us to consider this morning is this, those who live independent of God. I think there may be some among us who think that I may state this point a little too strongly. I don't believe so. What I want to do is I want to look back at the language that's found in verse 16, chapter 4. We read there this, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Follow this, friends. After his disobedience and his murder of Abel, his resultant curse by God, Cain left the presence of the Lord behind, and he settled in the land of Nod. Now, some argue this is merely a geographic statement. The presence of the Lord being the garden, the angel at the gate with the sword. But I would argue that this was more than a geographic move. This is more than geography. Far more than that, I believe that Cain was putting God in his rearview mirror. Cain was leaving God behind. In fact, the first thing that Cain did after his son was born was build a city. You may remember that God's curse of Cain told him that he was to be a fugitive and a wanderer for the rest of his days. And what is his first act after the curse and after he departs? He builds a city, he settles down in direct defiance of the word of God to him. I will not wander. I will live as I please, where I please, and do what I want. Cain was not just moving geographically. He was moving away from God. I don't know about the rest of you, but when I read this of his story, I, I wrestle through all of this. And there's something in me that wants to say, well, Cain's line then probably crashed and burned pretty quickly, right? I mean, you leave God in the dust, you leave God in the rearview mirror, and, and, and you, just, you drive yourself into disaster. I mean, this could not have gone well for them. I mean, it, it, it must have just fallen apart. I'm sure the wheels came off quickly, right? But friends, that's not what happened. In fact, to the contrary, as commentators Walbert and Zook describe it, they say God allows them, meaning Cain's descendants, to prosper in their earthbound way. They produce music and weapons and agricultural devices and cities. In other words, culture. 
It's their only recourse in a bitter, cursed world. What's it mean? They just kept on living. And God let them. I mean, all the way through this passage, we see the kind of of self-made, earth-bound culture and lives that Cain's descendants built. They built it for themselves and they built it away from the presence of the Lord. The text tells us that Cain built a city, verse 17. It tells us that Jabel fathered nomadic herders. They found a way to amass wealth to themselves by amassing animals and by traveling around and making sure they had a good living. Jubal fathered musicians. They made music and they sang and they played and they developed culture. Tubal Cain forged bronze and silver tools, likely weapons and farming implements. Even Lamech was a vicious and a violent warrior. He developed a reputation for making life work however he wanted, and you don't mess with Lamech because you do and you die. They all figured out a way to live, and God let them. He let them. And throughout these verses, friends, there is absolutely no mention of God except for a rather careless, passing, and convictionless reference by Lamech to God's judgment on violence. In verse 24, where he basically says, yeah, if God's going to judge Cain, then he's really going to judge me. But he, he acts like this, let it come. Let him do his worst. I'm going to do as I please. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Again, Walbert and Zook's description is insightful. I, I think they, 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 they have something here when they write. Here is a picture of an affluent society defying God and His laws, seeking pleasure and self-indulgence. We're going to live the life we want, where we want, do what we want, and enjoy it. As long as we can. Sound familiar? You know, friends, I I can't read this text. I, I have a hard time coming to this passage without my mind racing forward to other texts of Scripture. In fact, I quickly thought about the mighty Nebuchadnezzar who would later uh, stand on the, uh, really in the shadow, as it were, of this kind of godless mentality as he stood on the, the top of his palace. And he made his own blasphemous declaration about the life that he had built for himself. Daniel chapter 4, verse 29, we read, At the end of twelve months he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Wow. Independent of God. And his thinking, and his living, 
in his speaking, independent. The truth of the matter is that fallen, sinful, rebellious people choose not to submit themselves to the one who truly rules over all. They do what they want to do. And friends, hear me, the, the, the sovereign will ultimately do as he pleases with them. In fact, the psalmist writing about this kind of mentality among people, even among rulers and nations, writes very plainly, you know this, Psalm 2. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot, how? In vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What do they say? We're not going to have this God rule over us. We're going to do as we please. We're going to rule ourselves. We're going to do what we want, go where we want, live as we want, say what we want, pursue what we want. We are in charge of us. And how does the sovereign respond to that? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my Holy Hill. Clearly, God is God. It's what we read earlier from Revelation. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. But not everyone recognizes Him as such. And God will be ruler. He is ruler and will be recognized as such ultimately. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, God's correction was immediate. Daniel chapter 4 again, the next verse from what we read, what did we just say? He said, is not this great Babylon that I have built by my might for the glory of my name? The next verse in Daniel 4 says this, while the words were still in the king's mouth. He didn't even get it out. There fell a voice from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Wow. One who thought he ruled and lived independent of God in a moment, in that moment, was corrected by God so that he might know who truly rules. None of us are independent of God. But we think we can live that way sometimes. Now friends, I think if you're like me, you read a text like we just did in Genesis and 
you have to wonder some things, right? I mean, there's something in the follower of God that reads the story of Nebuchadnezzar and says, yes and amen. I mean, that's how it should be, right? I mean, those who want to live independent of God, God correct them. God, I mean, God just step in. God just fix it now. But can I ask you a question? How do you respond when God's correction of the independently wicked and godless is not immediate? When it actually looks like they're winning. They're prospering. They're getting away with it. What happens in your heart? What happens in your mind? I mean, how do you think? When you look at those who have actually charted a course away from God, he's in the rearview mirror, and they seem like they're thriving. What does that do in you? I think some of us might like to claim that our response is one of of at least disappointment, right? Maybe, maybe frustration, maybe even righteous indignation, right? But friends, I want you to pause for a moment and consider the fact that the psalmist once confessed a very different and far more common response than most of us would likely ever care to admit. In Psalm 73, Asaph wrote this. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a great statement. Let's just stop there, Asaph. (laughs) I mean, that's a great thing to say. Truly God is good. Look at verse 2. But as for me, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I've got to ask you. Ever been there? Do you know what it's like to be envious of the prosperity of the wicked? I mean, I know we all know how to work up some rage every now and then and get angry because life's not going like we want it to go, but will you be honest enough to admit with the psalmist what actually goes on in many of our hearts often? I wish I had what they had. You ever find yourself looking at the lives of those living independent of God, seemingly without consequence, and wishing that you could have the life that they have? And the honest among us have to at least sheepishly nod, yes, I know what that feels like. 
We don't like to admit it. We don't like to talk about it. But we do it. You see, in that psalm, the psalmist can continue to explain the source of his envy. What was actually causing him the problem? What was actually driving him crazy? What was producing envy of the wicked in his heart? In verse 3 of that psalm, he says, they are always prosperous. Seems like everything they do works. It makes them money. It makes them comfortable. In verses 4 and 5 of that passage, he says, They never are troubled. They sleep well. They're healthy. They're fit. Life's good for them. He says in verse 6 of that passage, They are proud and as violent as they like. And they get away with it. In verse 7, he says, They do not go without. And they never say no to themselves. They've always got what they want. They never have to tell themselves no. They eat and drink and play and run and vote and live and do, and they just don't ever seem to have a problem with it. In verse 8, he says, they sin without guilt. They don't feel bad when they do and say wrong. It doesn't even bother them. Verses 9 to 11, he says, they never live in the fear of judgment. They're not afraid. They're not concerned about what may be coming. In fact, they say things like, God doesn't see. Implication, there is no God. In verse 12, he tells us they have the rich and the easy life. And we look at that like he did. And there's a part of us that says, I'd kind of like to live without feeling guilty when I mess up. I'd like to be able to say whatever I want and not fear that it would come back on my head. I'd like to be able to live the life that I want, do what I want, play as I want, eat what I want, drink what I want, go where I want, do with whoever I want, what I want, and there not be any consequences. I'd like to have what seems to be unlimited wealth at my disposal. I remember a few years ago when I pastored in New Jersey, 
I was telling a brother this week, I think I was telling Luke this story about a, uh, the owner of the Baltimore Ravens lived in one town north of us. He had a, a summer home, a beach home. And a guy in my church was a cabinet maker. And the wife of the Baltimore Ravens owner said, I want you to put a bunch of custom cabinetry in my husband's garage, the garage at our beach house. The cost of the custom-made cabinets was north of $100,000. And she said, I want you to match the paint color of his car. The guy in my church looks at her and says, what happens if he gets a new car? Because she wanted to surprise him. She said, it's okay. I'll have you tear it all out and do it in the new color. What? And he looked at me and he said, that's how the other half lives, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I've got to confess, there was a moment in that conversation that I sat there as a pastor making very little money, living in a parsonage, not quite sure how I was going to make ends meet for my family, looking at him and thinking, boy, I wish some of that was mine. Been there? Envious of the prosperity of the wicked. And friends, all of this began to do something in the psalmist's heart. I want you to read what he began to conclude as he looked at his life when he felt guilt for sin. He, he knew there was judgment coming for, the, for, for all mankind and, and all the things that he was wrestling with and why he was living as he was living. And he's looking at all of them saying, I just kind of wish I had their peace and their prosperity and, and their life. And, and what does he say? Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It's vain to be holy. It's pointless. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's been my experience. I'm a child of God. That's how I live. Wow. Simply put, the psalmist saw the seeming success of sinners... And he concluded that fearing God and walking in holiness were not worth it. It's not worth it. Done. I think I'm going to walk away. And friends, the truth of the matter is that it can often feel like that in the midst of walking through this life. Is this worth it? But I would submit to you that that conclusion in the midst of life is kind of like deciding how the game will end at halftime. Because friends, we can't afford to miss what it is that set the psalmist's thinking straight again. In verse 16 of that psalm, we read, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Oh, I, I'm thinking on this, and it's just not made. I can't get my mind wrapped around this great divide between the independent and the dependent and what their experience in life is. 
It seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a, a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You see, in the end, the psalmist came back to his senses by, by entering the sanctuary to gaze upon his God. And he was reminded that this life is not all there is. See, the problem is this, to live independent of God or to think that that's the way to go actually is to convince yourself that this life is all there is. You only go around once, get all the gusto you can, right? Make sure you live it up and you're comfortable and you enjoy every moment because it's as good as it's ever going to get for you. But friends, the Bible is clear that, as we've already seen throughout our study of the first couple of chapters of Genesis, sin has consequences. In fact, sin's consequences have eternal implications. And friends, it was those eternal implications that turned the psalmist back to God. Just listen to the way the psalm ends. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to God. Now, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Writing of this psalm, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said this. Thus then the psalmist turns away from the glitter which fascinated him to the true gold which was his real treasure. He felt that his God was better to him than all the wealth, the health, the honor, and the peace which he had so much envied in the worldling. Yea, he was not only better than all on earth, but more excellent than all in heaven. He bade all things else go that he might be filled with his God. Friends, I want you to hear this. This is the great divide that we have in the passage at the end of Genesis chapter 4. 
Cain's line built their cities. They amassed their wealth. They made their music. They forged their tools. They sought their revenge. They lived their lives. They flaunted their liberty. And they pursued their happiness apart from the presence of the Lord. But there was another line that chose a different way. That leads us with the few minutes we have left to one more thought. We won't take as long on this one. We said that there are those who live independent of God, but friends, there are also those who live dependent on God. See, after all that Moses recorded about Cain and his unrighteous line, this is what we read in the last two verses of our text, verses 25 and 26. Don't don't miss it. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called him his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was a son born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Don't miss the way that Moses clearly presents the lines of Cain and Seth in contrast to one another. Back in verse 16, this is how this portion of the text begins. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. And this is how the section ends. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. One line is on a trajectory away, and one is on a trajectory toward Commentators are somewhat divided on what the phrase call upon the name of the Lord means. There's some different suggestions about it. Some suggest it means that they cried out or they prayed to God. Others argue it means that they came to understand their spiritual neediness and sought His mercy and His grace. Still others teach it means that they proclaimed God's name. They spread His fame. They, They walked under His banner through life. And some even seem to think that it may be a bit of all of the above. It means that they, as we just said, were dependent on God, not independent of Him. And regardless of what the exact meaning of the phrase is, what Moses wrote about Seth's line stands in stark contrast to what he said about Cain's. And friends, the contrast in this passage is as clear as it is striking. We just said it. Cain's descendants built cities, amassed wealth, made music, forged tools, sought revenge, and lived their lives apart from the presence of the Lord. But Seth's descendants called upon the name of the Lord. This passage certainly is not suggesting that Seth's descendants did not build or sing or shepherd. Doesn't mean they didn't do any forging. Rather, the language here is intended to communicate that what was most important and what was most noteworthy about each line. The only thing you could say of Cain's descendants is they made neat stuff. But what's fascinating is as you get to the next chapter, and we'll see it next week, Lord willing, you have various times in this story where there are characters where, what do we read? They walked with God. That's what they were known for. They walked with God. So we might say it this way. Seth's line understood and lived out the wisdom of what the psalmist would later write in Psalm 127. 
What did he say? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Cain's descendants thought that the end of all was to build. And once it was built, they had it. Seth's descendants understood we can build all we want. But if it's not God who builds our home, this house doesn't matter. I can make all the weapons I want and have every arsenal at my disposal, but my protection ultimately comes from God. He is the sovereign over my life. Let's be clear about this, friends. It's not that God's faithful people do not live. It is that they live dependent upon Him. They live dependent upon Him. And can we just be honest that far too many of God's professing people claim to be His and to want to do His will but they actually live, we could say, as practical atheists. He's not in their thoughts. He's not on their lips. He barely makes it into their calendar. Barely into their checkbook, right? They, they, they would say they're his. But they live as theirs. In fact, James had to write about this to warn a New Testament church to whom he ministered. He warned of those who, while claiming to be gods, just live their lives, make their plans, take their trips, make their money. But at the end of the day, God's not in their thoughts. What did he say? James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. I mean, is there anything sinful about those statements? Does the, does the Scripture forbid travel? No. Does the Scripture forbid working to make a profit so you can care for your family? No. Does the Scripture uh, forbid actually setting, hopefully, a, a goal of time? I'm going to go and do this for a year. Is that forbidden in Scripture? No. So why does James take issue with someone who seems to just be planning ahead to be able to take care of their family? Because they left God out of the whole thing. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead of talking like the guy in verse 13, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, I'll still be around tomorrow, let alone a year from now. I don't know what today holds, friends. I don't know if you have more of a thoughts like these, but I'll tell you, three times in the last four days, I have driven into an intersection after my light turned green, and I have thought, Lord, is this the moment I'm going to be broadsided and my life will end? 
Not because I wasn't following rules or I wished it. But I don't know if you've noticed how many life-taking car wrecks have happened in Raleigh in the last 15 days. Shootings at intersections in our town. And three times in the last five days, I've driven into an intersection and wondered if I would come out the other side alive. And I was following every rule of the road. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, meaning speaking like verse 13, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And sadly, there seem to be very few among God's professing people in our day who actually believe that living independently is actually arrogant and evil. And so we just live. And we plan. And we make money. And we buy stuff. And we do as we want. And hope God's okay with it. If God even enters our thoughts. At all. And we would say we are the people of God. You see what I find most striking about this. Is that Moses didn't have to say that Seth's people built and farmed and lived Because that's a given. All of them did it. They had to. What's so striking about this is that one group actually did it completely dependent upon God. And the other did it without a thought of God at all. And I have to ask this question. Besides the room you sit in on a Sunday morning... And the book that sits on your nightstand by your bed. What's different between your life and your neighbor's? Between my life and my neighbor's? Are we living practically independent? Or are we living dependent lives? Brothers and sisters, let me state this plainly. We must intentionally, trustingly, and consistently live as people who call upon the name of the Lord. 
But it's so easy to just live and make sure there's a little bit of religious stuff on our calendar. Do we live as people dependent upon God? You see, we cannot afford to forget the fact that it was the righteous line of Seth, friends, through whom God would eventually send the long-promised serpent-crushing Savior in whom we still trust and live. In fact, we'll see that this line becomes the focus of attention in the very next chapter as we see a genealogy, and that is going to be contrasted with the wickedness of chapter 6. We're going to watch this become significant as these genealogies begin to narrow the focus on the line of who is coming. But I want you to notice what Moses begins this story as he begins to chart the narrowing of of the line to make sure we know what was noteworthy about this line versus the other. And in a day like ours, I think it seems fitting that we regularly remind ourselves of truths like the ones that we've considered this morning. You see, the truth of the matter is that, friends, there is still a great divide in humanity. Those who live independent of God and those who live dependent on God. And I think I would be remiss in my duty as a pastor, a preacher, and a shepherd if I did not at least ask you this morning to ask yourself a serious question. Which side of that divide are you on? Which side of it are you on? A couple of years ago as I was meditating on the psalm, words of Psalm 73, I wrote a poem. It's now been set to music. It's now a song. But I thought it might be appropriate just to kind of end with my personal meditations on the psalm we spent kind of the core of the message on this morning. In my meditations, I just wrote this. Truly, God is good and gracious, blessing all those pure in heart. But my feet had almost stumbled, nearly faltered from the start. When I saw the rich but wicked, arrogant though lost in sin, my heart ever prone to wander, fickle, foolish, envied them. Sinners seem to have no troubles, health and happiness are theirs. Pride and violence are garments that the scorner boldly wears. Judgment does not seem to scare them, so they scoff. God does not see. Tragically, their boasts embolden doubts and unbelief in me. When my soul was tossed and troubled, Torn by bitter, burdening care, God in mercy pricked my spirit, freed me from sin's dark despair. He reminded me that sinners will receive their just reward. Like a dream when one awakens, justice will reign from the Lord. Then I turned to gaze on Jesus. 
Lord of glory lifted up, righteous judge of all the nations, drinker of God's wrath-filled cup, Christ, my all-sufficient helper, prize of all-surpassing worth, he alone, my hope in heaven, is my treasure here on earth. My friends, that is the heart of the psalmist when he looks at this divide. And I pray it's our heart this morning. So to that end, I pray that by God's grace, we may each turn to gaze on Jesus and so live as those who call Upon the name of the Lord. And to that end, I want to pray as we close this morning. Father, our hearts, my heart needs this reminder. so easy to conclude there's got to be somebody else this is for. We read right through family lines and books like Genesis and we kind of read over them to get to the good stuff. But Father, there is good stuff for us right here. And I pray that you would take your word and change us. We are so prone to self-sufficiency rather than God-dependence. So I pray that you would remind us today what you made us of. You remember that we are dust. May you remind us that we are dust. And Father, may you draw our hearts our wandering hearts close to you. Father, those yet outside of Christ who have yet to place their faith in him, may they, may they turn trustingly to him today. But Father, I look around the room and I, I see so many, most all of us here would claim, would claim that we are his, we are yours. But I have to ask of myself and of all of us, would our lives tell a different story? Besides a room we frequent every now and then, besides a, a book that is multiple copies in our homes, would our lives demonstrate God-dependence or independence? Might you challenge our thinking and might you change our living for it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.